0: Hi there, welcome to Mental Health Professionals Network podcast series. MHPN's aim is to promote and celebrate interdisciplinary, collaborative mental health care. Hello and welcome to Book Club. My name is John Cooper. I'm a psychiatrist who leads a youth mental health team in regional Victoria and I also work part-time for Phoenix Australia, the Centre for Post-Traumatic Mental Health. For today's discussion, I have, with permission, broadened the concept of book club to include a journal article and today we'll be discussing an article published almost 50 years ago. In doing so, I appreciate I may be incriminating myself in terms of my age and also your age, Mark, Uh, but in my defence, I reckon it was about 30 years ago when I first read it and most of the things we'll be talking about are still very much relevant today. The article is titled, Common Features of Psychotherapy. It's written by Jerome Frank. It's actually the transcript of a talk that he gave and it was published in the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Psychiatry back in 1972. My guest today is Professor Mark Creamer. Mark, can I get you to
1: tell us just a little bit about yourself? Yes, John, and and, uh, thank you very much indeed for inviting me to be here your guest on this on this book club episode so yeah my name is Mark Cremer, I'm a clinical psychologist in private practice and a prof- professorial fellow in the department of psychiatry at the University of Melbourne and I've uh, had a very very long interest in the mental health effects of trauma in particular um, and uh, and mental health more broadly as well and so this kind of article I think uh, raises all sorts of interesting questions for me and uh, looking forward to our discussion great Thanks, Mark.
0: Coming up, we'll be talking about common features of psychotherapy and the impact that it's had on our thinking and our practice. My reason for choosing this article is that as a young psychiatrist, I felt it solved a particular dilemma. Early on, learning about all of the different psychotherapies, being impressed by the writings of the Freuds and Kleins, the Skinners and the Becks, I struggled with how, when it comes to solving the problem of human suffering. How could they all be right Um, and yet be so different? I was also slightly concerned about the guru factor, the cult of personality. I wondered how that impacted on the way that we practice. So when I read about the shared common features elaborated by Jerome Frank, that helped resolve these concerns and it led me to consider the merits of an eclectic approach to psychological treatments. I had met you, Mark, and you probably don't remember this mm-hmm. because you know you are getting on a little bit, but <laughs> I met you in my final year of training while writing my dissertation on PTSD in veterans. You were the local expert. You had done some uh, groundbreaking research after the Queen Street massacre. Um, and I was directed to you for some guidance in terms of my research and then, blink a couple of times, a few years later you were my boss at what was then called the National Centre for PTSD. Mm -hmm. So it was in our respective roles there that we had this discussion, or probably more like a polite argument. And I, you know, the listeners need to understand, Mark, that whilst this was quite salient for me, when I raised it with you, you had no (laughs)
1: recollection
0: of our argument. Um, But nevertheless, you did make a strong argument against an eclectic approach. And I reckon that your arguments substantially shifted my thinking at the time. Now, we've continued to work in the area of post-traumatic mental health, as you mentioned earlier, and our paths regularly cross... Uh, I think it's worth noting that we're currently both working on a project uh, to develop a centre of excellence for emergency service workers, uh, their mental health in the state of Victoria, um, as part of our role at Phoenix Australia. So, Mark, have I sufficiently jogged your memory about what we talked about back in the
1: mid-90s? First of all, let me apologise for the fact I don't actually remember this explicit argument. Having said that, uh, the word eclectic always sets off flashing lights in my head, and uh, I have no doubt that we discussed it on several occasions. Uh, and as you say, this is a, a general theme that keeps, um, I was going to say rearing its ugly head, but it keeps coming back and keeps uh, being a, a, an important focus for discussion. Um, but I do, I do sometimes have some concerns, and I expect this is what we argued about, uh, when we talk about being eclectic, that it really is just an excuse to uh, grab a bit from here and a bit from there, uh, without really any coherent sort of theoretical or, or, or empirical kind of support, and so I, I'm sure it would have it would have triggered a reaction in me <laughs> reliably. I'm sure, yes. But having said that, I do think a lot of what he says we're probably going to agree on today. So,
0: yes, yes. Now, I think my thinking at the time was that with all of our training, with the experience that we have, shouldn't we be adapting what we do to the needs of the patients that we're treating? It didn't make sense to me that the patient had to conform with or or uh, agree with a single theoretical approach. And seeing that all of the dominant theories and therapies have some merit... Uh, That was my thinking at the time that drew me to an eclectic approach. I thought that it was probably going to be good or even better for the patient. You then introduced me to the rigours of evidence-based treatment. Mm -hmm. And I think that remains... My starting point in thinking about this, and certainly from a clinical practice perspective. And I
1: thank you for that. this <laughs> it's my very great pleasure, John. I'm glad I had some influence. Um, but yeah, look, and, and I, I certainly have sympathy with the views that you expressed there that I think it is important for us to tailor our treatments to the individual, to not assume we can just, you know, pull a step by step manual off the shelf and give the same to everybody. Uh, but I do think there's a big difference between tailoring treatment. That still has a strong evidence base and a strong theoretical framework, uh, uh, from that to to eclectic, where we'll, as I say, take a bit from here and a bit from there. But um, yeah, uh, I I certainly wouldn't want want to suggest that we should be too rigid in our approaches. Good. Okay, well look,
0: let's just sort of summarise briefly what Frank has uh, written about in his uh, article. I think uh, it's important to acknowledge uh, that he introduces his remarks uh, as talking about this topic from a historical and a cultural perspective. So he's not necessarily proposing sort of a hard scientific or empirical discussion. He acknowledges that while he's uh, being published in the Australian Journal, that his remarks particularly pertain to the American scene and really he was referring to the late 1960s and the early 1970s. So we're thinking about towards the end of the Cold War, we're thinking about the end of the Vietnam War, we're thinking about all of the uh, amazing
1: and dynamic social changes going on at the time. That's right. Can I pick up on that point? Sure. Because I I do think it's an important one that um, he was writing at that time, as you say, and he was really describing, I think, um, not only psychotherapy, behavioral psychotherapy and psychodynamic psychotherapy as it was in the 1960s, but also the state of psychiatry generally or or mental health generally. And I do think that there have been so many important developments that, that... have driven changes in treatment and driven our understanding about how best to treat people uh, so many important changes since this since that time and, and and I'd love to know how he would write this article if he was around today whether he'd still stick with it but I do think you know I think things like changes in in diagnosis you know we've progressed massively there really and our ability to to perhaps fit more specific treatments to specific diagnoses and uh,
0: well that's certainly where I think the article Lands in terms of his recommendations at the time for the future. And interestingly, if we just look at the four groups that he uh, described um, sort of as being relevant to receiving psychological treatments, he spoke about those with existential concerns that we might call the worried well, he spoke about those who are normally and usually well but might be temporarily overwhelmed by the crisis or the trauma that they've just gone through. Uh, he referenced the chronic um, serious mental illnesses that um, some people experience who are likely to require medical treatments, but medical treatments alone clearly being insufficient. And then he, his fourth group were a little bit harder to sort of clarify, and I suspect that's because, at least in my mind, because I think the language that he used had particular relevance to when he was uh, Mm -hmm. writing, but my interpretation is he's talking about those with developmental trauma or early other sort of experiences um, that we consider causative of mental health problems. And I suspect if he was writing today, he'd be talking about attachment kind of difficulties as one
1: of the elements of this group. He might be, yeah. And, and I'd like to go back through those groups, actually, but just on that point. Um, you know, the, 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 the group of what we would consider high prevalence conditions, so our anxiety disorders, our depression, perhaps our substance use, certainly our PTSD, I think really all of those, they certainly don't fit into any of the other three groups. And I, So I think essentially he's kind of lumping them there. And, and I'm, I think it's a slight pity that he's gone to an etiological formulation and saying, this is the group that, because of early childhood experience or whatever, uh, if we understand it more from a, a, a contemporary diagnostic perspective, those high prevalence conditions, I think would have to fit in there. And I think he's saying really, isn't he, that, that this is the only group of the four that, that psychotherapy is really cut out for. Um, he says in, in the first one, I don't know if he actually says it or maybe I may, misread it, but he basically says this first group who are sort of looking for the meaning of life and so on, they'd be better off going and joining a religious cult kind of thing, something like that. He, I, I, I,
0: I'm not sure that that's quite. I, I think <coughs> I read it as he distinguished between folk who were clinically trained in... Um, mental health conditions and in the therapies um, as not being needed for this group, that more general counsellors or less trained folk could easily satisfy the needs. Uh, I think he, with the, the crisis group, he basically said, and again, this is... My misrepresentation. Yeah, anybody capable of giving them a nice warm hug and a a cup of tea. Mm. Um, (laughs) I think he does say caring, stable kind of
1: people. Anyone can do it.
0: And um, yes. So, and I think with that fourth group that we would consider the high prevalence disorders. um, I think he said that that's probably where we should be able to finesse the therapy
1: for the presenting problem. I think that's right. Just to come back to the third group, which is our chronically unwell kind of people, he, he's also a bit dismissive there in the sense. I think he says, you know, these can be uh, looked after essentially by non-professional people who are supervised by professionals. And you know, we talked a minute ago about the kinds of developments that have taken place since he wrote this. And I think now we would say, even with that quite chronic group, we have quite a lot to offer in terms of modern approaches to yeah. things. Yes, I think he, he references anything that boosts morale will um, <laughs> <It's laughs> we'll <strong> do.
0: <laughs> so if we just, I think, um, in providing uh, the listeners to the book club uh, just a, a clearer sense of what Frank was describing as the common factors. Yeah. Um, six of them. The first one is that there is an intense, emotionally charged, confiding relationship. Should we take them one at a time? Okay. Is that right? Yep. So well, let's actually, let's go through them okay. and then we'll go back. Right, so right. that uh, you're the boss, John. Yep. Yeah. No, no. So yeah. that <laughs> the, 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 the book club listeners know where we're going. Yes. Good idea. Uh, the second one is to have a rationale or myth that provides an explanation and solution to the patient's problem. The third is the provision of new information to help explain and solve the problems. Uh, The fourth is strengthening the patient's expectation of help through the personal qualities of the therapist. The fifth is providing a success or providing success experiences that heighten hope and enhance mastery and personal competence. And the final one is the facilitation of emotional arousal. And just in response to that, he does write a little bit about abreaction and some of those Mm -hmm. uh, methods that um, have facilitated uh, these strong emotional responses. So going back to the first one... Hmm. An intense,
1: emotionally charged, confiding relationship. A strong therapeutic relationship, essentially. And uh, just as an overview, I think it's interesting how many of these now actually do have empirical support for them. So he was definitely on the right track. But, yeah, so I think a strong therapeutic relationship is really important. And as you know, but the the listeners may not, my background is unashamedly in behavioural and cognitive behavioural kind of approaches. And certainly in the early days, and I think really when he was talking, uh, there would be this assumption that behavioural psychological therapy has nothing to do with the therapeutic relationship, you know, because we're good with rats and so on. But um, the reality is, of course, that it's absolutely vital. And there was that classic experiment, wasn't there, where they had um, three uh, well-known therapists, of which one was Carl Rogers, you know, Mr. Empathy himself, and, and one was Joe Volpe, who's very well-known behavioral, early behavioural psychologist, and they asked independent raters to rate the level of empathy of these three, and lo and behold, Joe Volpe came up number one on empathy. So, strong therapeutic relationship I'm not going to argue with for a minute. I think it's really important, yeah. And, you know, if you look at it from the perspective
0: of the person seeking help, um, clearly, if you're going to come back a second time, there's got to be some element of that there. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. The... um The rationale or myth, Um, and he he expands and sort of qualifies his reference to myth. Um, What do you think about that? Because uh, I I think that the language that I would tend to use would be in the early stages of a clinical assessment forming through a formulation a hypothesis, Um, a hypothesis that's informed by... Um, the perspective, the theory, the, uh, the understanding of the approach. Um, I don't think that's exactly what he means in his reference to myth. And in, in some respects, he's actually uh, um, shooting down what he, he calls or ref- means is a pseudoscience underpinning um, a number of the sort of
1: the psychotherapeutic approaches. Yeah. I mean, I think that this this point about giving your client or your patient a rationale sort of underpins several of the others that we're going to talk about in just a minute, actually. Um, but yeah, look, I, I, I do think it's important to give them some kind of understanding of where you're coming from and how you're going to work together on, on these kind of problems. Um, I well remember in my early training reading some work from a guy called Donald Meichenbaum, who was one of the early cognitive people, really, not too long after this article was written. Uh, and he talked about this, the importance of the rationale. I remember him saying that um, the actual truth or the factual accuracy of the rationale is not nearly as important as its credibility for the client, you know. And if it makes sense for them, then you, you've kind of engaged them and, and they're, you're starting off on the right kind of path. So, um, yeah, look, I'll go along with it, I think. It,
0: From a, a CBT perspective or really... Um, a more general perspective, aren't we just talking about psychoeducation
1: here? Well, I notice that's his next one, really, Mm -hmm. isn't it? I'm going to talk about that. Um, To a certain extent, we are, but I I guess, you know, there are are, um, elements of... of, um, uh, I think you can go beyond that a little bit to explain a bit more about um, how things developed and how that relates to how you're going to work on it. I use lots of um, diagrams and pictures, you know, and so on. Uh, But anyway, I quite quite agree. Talk about the next one because I think you're right, it does lead into it. So, provision of new information to help explain and solve the problems.
0: That that really follows from the previous one. Um, A person needs to have a reason to do what you're suggesting as part of the solution and... The experience of a patient saying, well, I've done that, I've tried that, I've been told that, mm-hmm. um, how do you move them from that position to uh, understanding that there is in fact a way forward that is has a reasonable chance of being effective. Um, it means giving them some hope that
1: you can bring something to bear that maybe the three previous people didn't mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. And, and of course it's particularly important in our field, isn't it? In the trauma field, where really what you're asking them to do is the, the worst thing. I mean, exactly what they don't want to do is go back there and revisit this stuff. And we're telling them, no, actually, this is really important. So, um, yeah, I think, I think so, so having some kind of rationale as to why we might do that is crucial. I also think another thing that just springs to mind. We're talking about psychoeducation or, uh, th- this sort of area is, um, uh, is the fact that we've kind of got a name for it, we've got a label for it, that people come in thinking I'm the only person in the whole world who's going through this. And you can say, actually, we've worked with a lot of these people, we understand it, and here's, we've got a name for it, we can call it whatever it is, PTSD or OCD or whatever. Uh, that can sometimes be very reassuring for people, I think. And that's, so in that sense, I think psychoeducation is also helpful. Uh, yeah. And I think... um we're probably at the risk of moving on to sort of therapy, but there are some very simple things that I would put under the heading of psychoeducation around things like lifestyle, simple stuff about looking after yourself and getting plenty of rest and so on. That we're not, they're not really therapy, but they're really good and sensible. And exercise is very important and things like that that we could put under here if we wanted. But surely before you go anywhere near
0: say, an exposure exercise with a patient, you've given them a very explicit rationale. You've given them information about uh, the likelihood of success. You've told them that there's going to be you know, high levels of distress but it's going to be controlled. Uh, it's going to be managed in a way that is uh, likely to, to allow them to feel the benefit down the track to improve their functioning, their quality of life. That's part of your, of part of our uh, uh, spiel. I mean,
1: before we yeah. can uh, go anywhere near that. Yeah, absolutely right. And and um, we might come back to this on his number six, really, where he talks about our reaction, but uh, yeah, I think perhaps more so when we're using a technique like prolonged exposure, I mean, we should do it all the time, but it's particularly important for there, I, I, I agree, because...
0: Well, certainly from a, a medical perspective, um, I'm disappointed and surprised when uh, I encounter patients who have been given no information about their medication. Mm. Um, And, you know, this this rationale and the myth, I think, is equally relevant to the prescription. Yes. Because, uh, you know, we have multiple different biological theories as to why people get depressed and how antidepressants work, for mm. example. Mm. Um, so I, I see that, that uh, some of these elements are really core to good practice and um, you
1: know, psychological interventions clearly benefit when they're done well. Exactly. And, and presumably, as you allude to, pharmacological as well, actually. Oh. Um, anyway, let's move on to number four. What was number four?
0: Number four is uh, patients' expectations uh, of help. So it's around um, uh, giving them the confidence that we know what we're doing as the the therapists and the practitioners, that we've done it before. Uh, I think this is sometimes quite difficult for younger clinicians. Mm.
1: Um, But uh, how does that work? Yeah, well, I think... um, it's certainly, I was alluding to the fact that a, a number of these have now been borne out by empirical support, and there are a number of studies looking at how expectancy, positive expectancy links into outcome. Uh, and I remember being told once uh, early on in my career that, that as a good therapist, a big part of your job is being a salesman. It is actually convincing them this is, this is gonna work. And so I suppose that, um, I mean, what it does do, I think, is it helps to, uh, improve engagement and ensure engagement, ensure commitment because they're, um, they believe that it's really gonna work if, if they put themselves into it. I think it's probably along those lines, yeah. Because it, I mean, it's interesting,
0: the personal qualities of the therapist, um, if you think about the dominant paradigm before this was written, and that's sort of a, a psychoanalytic or psychodynamic paradigm, um, the personal qualities of the therapist were often quite opaque. Mm. Mm. And a lot of that was sort of left to the uh, the patient to either invent or discern for themselves. Mm -hmm. But even that seemed to be or seems to be part of the therapeutic potency there. Um, Mm -hmm. The personal qualities of the therapist, how we think about that in the context of boundaries. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I think, you know, there's information that patients have about our qualifications, you know, we get referrals, so... The people referring uh, are giving information. Um, mm. But why does one patient turn up once and doesn't come back again and another person turns up and
1: says, yeah, let's go? Mm. Um, there's a ho- Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a whole range of explanations, I suspect. It'll very individual kinds of things. Um, you know, but... but I think we have to accept the fact that, that um, we all get on well with different people and, so, and I, I often tell people, you know, if you, don't, if you don't feel that we're a good fit, that's fine, I'm not going to be offended at all, you know, you, you find someone who you think is, you're a good fit with, it's fine with me. But I think this, this whole thing about the therapist kind of um, charisma or whatever it is, it taps into what you started off at the very beginning, talking about gurus and so on, and there's no doubt that there is, there are, you know, throughout the history of psychotherapy in the broadest sense, there have been these people who seem to get remarkable results, as you say, you know, doing completely different things. And how much of that is due to their charisma and their kind of guru status? I don't know. It's it's certainly a factor, isn't it? Number five. Number five is
0: the provision of success experiences that heighten hope and enhance mastery and personal competence. And this just seems to me to be, um, you know, uh, a fairly clear advertisement to what happens in cognitive and behavioural therapy. I'm
1: so <laughs> glad you said that, John, because if you hadn't, I would have done <laughs> But I think you're right. I do think that CBT is ideally placed to give some early quick wins and, and to help the people feel reasonably quickly. They're beginning to, to get some mastery. And Well, I, I think the, the cognitive behavioural approach for
0: depression is around activating people into things that they enjoy and that they're good at. Um, So that's um, clearly going to be uh, a more straightforward step than asking an anxious person to do an
1: exposure therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, But with our anxious people, of course, we have techniques or strategies that we can give them around whatever, controlled breathing and, yeah. It also goes to the importance of between-session work that is
0: a, a core... Part of a cognitive behavioural approach, the homework, the uh, the in vivo work, uh, the readings, the the monitoring, um, the whole package seems to be well encapsulated
1: in this particular point that he's yeah. making. I think it's a, it's a very good point, isn't it? And I do think that. Um i am say, suggesting for a second that CBT is necessarily the only one to do it, but it does take a very collaborative approach. We're working together as distinct from the more traditional models where you go to your doctor or whatever, and you, the doctor does something to you or gives you something uh, where you don't really have a great deal of control. And as you say, no responsibility during the week to do anything, as long as you take your tablets or whatever. Uh, whereas, yes, the CBT approach is very different. And I think by... Adopting that collaborative approach and engaging the person themselves as an agent in their own change, uh, it, it, I think it adds to the power independent of what, anything else that you might do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And then finally the facilitation of emotional arousal. And I
1: think that has to lead into uh, some of his discussion around ab reaction. It does, which we will, we will go on to, John. But even without ab reaction, I do think that it's kind of worth recognising that effective therapy is a bit painful. You know, you're always going to be dealing with something difficult. That's the nature of why the person's sitting in front of you. And if you want to come in and have a nice hour, we can chat about the football or whatever, but you're not going to get any better. So I think, I do think that some kind of emotional stuff is inevitable. And then, as you say, yeah, go on then, ab, ab reaction, yeah. So let me... Um
0: be a little bit provocative, um abreaction, prolonged
1: exposure. What's the difference? Well I think abreaction, you know ab reaction carries a whole lot of history with it, doesn't it? It, it? it carries actually a theoretical kind of model which we wouldn't necessarily agree with, but also a whole lot of baggage and history and so on. But what's the difference? Well I do think the difference is, and you alluded to this earlier in your you know what you might tell your clients, that um prolonged exposure is a much more controlled process. So the person is in control, it's step-by-step step, hierarchically going through it um, in a collaborative kind of way and so on. Whereas I do think ab reaction traditionally tended to be quite uncontrolled, was often chemically facilitated, and, um, and often did prove to be, I think, terrifying experience for the poor person going through it. So uh, we, we're, we're not that mean anymore, we <laughs> do. And, and I don't think it worked that well, really. Um, but it's been, I mean,
0: Frank will argue that it's been a fairly recurrent feature of different paradigms and different approaches. Mm. Mm. Um, And, look, uh, I've been around long enough in the early stages to have actually witnessed some attempts at abreaction Mm. pharmacologically and through hypnotherapy. Mm. And done well, I don't actually recall them being incredibly uncontrolled. Mm-hmm. The clinicians, the therapists were skilled, they uh, they were mindful of the fact that, uh, you know, the session had to end, that the, the patient had to function afterwards. And whilst sort of the, uh, you know, sort of the textbook descriptions of ab reaction have that uncontrolled element to it, um, I think there were some of the strategies that, are used in say prolonged exposure, uh, where you're looking to have suds go up, you know, mm-hmm. to eight out of ten or, or whatever, and kept their high levels of distress. Uh, I reckon in good therapy that controlled factor, that safety
1: factor, is always there. Yeah. Yeah, okay, look, I'll certainly pay that. And that's the criteria isn't it? In, in good therapy, however we want to define it, that um, I'm sure that, you know, ab reaction, whatever that is, it's just a word, you know, but when it's done well, doesn't look that different, I quite agree. And equally, you know, there are some horror stories about people doing exposure in a very uncontrolled kind of way as well. So, uh, yeah, so, so, so I, I agree that there is a big overlap. What I would say is, is perhaps that now um, it comes back back to what we were saying earlier, that the process prolonged exposure now has a, a strong body of research about what, how best to do it, and also a strong theoretical framework underpinning it, particularly around um, not only habituation, but also around emotional processing, information processing kind of stuff. So um, so I think, you know, perhaps that's a bit of a difference, but yeah, look, essentially I'm, I'm prepared to give it a bit of ground there. Yes, yes. So that's the six, isn't it? That's the six. And I don't really disagree. I'm not, I'm not going to fight <laughs> over any of those. What I am going to fight over is whether, you know, that in itself is enough. And really, whatever else you do doesn't matter. As long as you've got those six, then the person's going to get better. That's, that's where I'm going to disagree, I guess. So, what are the elements, then, beyond the six? I think that it comes back to um, what I was saying earlier in terms of uh, better diagnosis and uh, therefore more sophisticated kind of treatment matching. And so, for example, um, you mentioned yourself uh, depression, that if we've got someone who's depressed, even if we do all these kinds of things, maybe some of them will get better, but without things like some behavioral activation, which is sort of fundamental really, um, and perhaps without some kind of cognitive restructuring, uh, you're going to get much more limited effects. And, and similarly with anxiety, uh, you know, if, if without the kind of some kind of exposure to the feared stimulus, uh, without those kinds of things. I'm interested that he says, and he kind of says it in a throwaway kind of uh, statement, he talks about um, uh, modelling rewards, extinguishing fears through repeated exposure, variants of abreaction. reaction. So he's kind of acknowledging that there are things we can use. There are tools, if you like, or techniques that, that are going to improve our outcomes. And that's, um, that's where I think it's really important. In thinking about this and reflecting uh, on my own
0: work and experience, I can recall telling my juniors and registrars that the older that I get, the more behavioural I get. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the day, whether it's a pill or a cognitive strategy, or an interpretation. If it doesn't lead to behavioural change, what's the point? Mm. Um, the behavioural change that leads to improved functioning, which in turn leads to improved quality of life. Um, so it's what's the best way to get that change, that behavioural change?
1: Yeah.
0: And I mean, and that behavioural change, I think also works at a relationship level. We see a lot of the problems our patients experience impact adversely on relationships. Changing behaviour within relationships is another example of the benefits Mm -hmm. and if we can straighten somebody's uh, distorted cognitions or if we can link um, a maladaptive response to a childhood experience or does it matter if it then ultimately leads to
1: that behavioural change? I, 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 think, you're, I think you're absolutely right, actually, and I think that, that there are probably a number of different ways to get there, uh, uh, with, you know, many of which have evidence, evidence for them, but I quite agree that really we share that end goal and, uh, and you know, and I, and I tend to agree with Frank that if, if we can bring in those kind of six things, that's great. I think, uh, yeah,
0: Good. All right. Well, look, I suspect that we're (coughs) nearing the end of our time. I just wanted to go off on a slight tangent before we finished. And um, I was taken a little bit by his sort of account of the historical aspects of the way treatments and therapies have evolved over time. And uh, he contrasted sort of the psychodynamic approach that might reflect an earlier time, maybe, from Europe, a more uh, paternalistic, authoritarian approach to what was different in the more, at the time, modern American experience. Mm-hmm. And he spoke about the culture being characterised by a pragmatism and a gregariousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, uh, he linked the pragmatism to the... Uh, Uh, commencement of the sort of the behavioural therapies, Mm. practical here and now, and he linked the gregariousness to the burgeoning group therapies Mm. that we haven't really touched upon but uh, were uh, probably um, raging at Mm. the time that he wrote this. Yes. Um, What do you think the impact of our current place in history and the, uh, the cultural changes that might uh, have arisen out of, you know, the internet, social media, the things that are having dominant influences today, mm. how do we characterise ourselves today as a society? And what's the relevance of
1: that to the way we practice? I wish you'd give just... me some warning on that one, John. <laughs> Throw that at me in the last minute. Um, oh, I, mean, it's... <laughs> I, I, I do think that, that, you know, we we could say this at any stage mm-hmm. in our history, I suppose, but the fact is society is changing mm-hmm. very fast, isn't it? And I think that, that the it's really hard to underestimate I think the impact of the internet but more particularly social media and how that changes the way people not only relate to each other but also but very importantly feel about themselves and judge themselves and so on so um, I do think that that's going to be kind of a, a, a bit of a defining feature so we in mental health I think have to um, be part of that and we have to adjust our our the way we work I guess to fit in with that and so on and uh, I, I'm rather glad I'm sort of coming to a <laughs> tarmac because right. social media and me don't get on at all. Well, that's right. Look, <laughs> I,
0: the fact that we're doing book club via podcast, I think that's probably <laughs> testing us, you know, taking us to our limits. And you've got your pipe and slippers, there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to have to depend upon younger folk to uh, to answer some of these questions and, and move the field forward. I suspect this stuff is going to remain core and central to hmm. good practice, but. I think, going forward, is going to look a lot
1: different. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. And um, it will be interesting to see how many of these, how many of his six principles kind of stand up and how many could be massaged away if we've got a computer doing it instead of a human being. Mm. But uh, time will tell. Yes, but, yeah, so apps, web-based therapies, mm. podcasts, it's, mm. uh, yeah... Um, It's an exciting time, really, but you're you're absolutely right. We have to leave it to someone else.
0: Did you have any other final
1: sort of remarks or comments about the article before we uh, Uh, finish? I don't think so, John, except to say that I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you asked me to be part of it because this is a, 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 a paper that I would have forgotten about completely. So being uh, sort of forced to read it again and so on was a very interesting experience and it is an interesting article and I'd certainly recommend it to listeners. It's quite short and um, uh, but well, well worth having a read if you get a chance.
0: Yes, and, and um, interestingly, you know, this is, I guess a confession towards the end is that when uh, I was approached about the book club, I had conflated in my memory this article and Frank's book, Persuasion mm-hmm. and Healing. Mm-hmm. And I've, uh, I have it on reliable information that, uh, in fact, that will be uh, a future uh, podcast podcast. For the book club,
1: oh. around the book, which uh, well, that would be interesting to see what they're taking. We mustn't allow them to listen to ours before they do that. <laughs> but it'll be uh, yeah, that'll be an, in, interesting to see what their take on it. Yeah. yeah.
0: So that's something for the listeners of the book club to look forward to. You've been listening to Mark Kramer and John Cooper. We'd like to hear from you about your thoughts on this particular episode, as well as any ideas for content for future episodes. For any information on what we've discussed in this episode, please check the show notes. Make sure you tune in to the next episode of The Book Club. And thanks
1: for listening. So it's goodbye from me, John Cooper. And goodbye from me, Mark Creamer. Thank you.
0: Visit mhpn.org.au to find out more about our online professional program, including podcasts, webinars, as well as our face-to-face interdisciplinary mental health networks across Australia.